Hi everyone, welcome to the Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Cédric Nadeau and myself, Alexis Beaulieu. Cédric pursues a Bachelor of Finance while I am studying Applied Mathematics, both in McGill. Thanks to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cementa Development LTD, and Red Bull. Our guest for today is Dimitri Bienko. Mr. Bienko hosts a YouTube channel about quantitative finance with over 35,000 subscribers. He has experiences in various quantitative finance positions. He is very knowledgeable about the industry and has very thoughtful insights. He has a Master of Applied Economics from the University of Michigan and a Bachelor of Business Administration in Finance from Washington State University. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Dimitri Bienko. Hi, Dimitri. How are you today? Good. How are you? We're good. Thanks. To start, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your education, and your professional experiences? Okay. So uh, my name is Dimitri. I've worked in quantitative finance probably for the last nine years, closing it on 10 years here. Uh, I started out my career, though, uh, in operations and actually manual labor, doing manufacturing. And that led me into doing corporate finance and accounting for the firm. I got my undergrad in finance uh, at Washington State University, and then I went on and was unemployed for a full year uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and finally decided to go back to school um, for financial engineering master's. Ended up that was not for me. I changed paths a little bit and transferred into a applied economics master's at the University of Michigan. And then after that, I uh, finally went into quantitative finance on the sell side, which is banking. Uh, and I've been doing that now for about nine years. Uh, where I build models, validate models, uh, I've done model implementation and internal audit. So kind of that full spectrum of quant from beginning to end. And uh, how was the, tra- the transition between a tra- traditional finance degree and a more quantitative focused uh, degree? Uh, it was absolutely miserable, to be honest with you guys. So I gra- graduated with a finance degree uh, wanting to be on Wall Street, but my last semester of my senior year of undergrad, I realized Um, I took a class on financial engineering uh, taught by a grad student who had a master's in, uh, I think it was like pure mathematics or applied math, uh, working on her finance PhD. But she showed us that quant finance or real trading or real investing, you know, was really all about doing math and stats. And of course, it's the last semester of the year and you're graduating. And then I realized I want to do math and stats. I want to end up on Wall Street. And all those kind of business classes are fun and exciting, uh, but they weren't really what I wanted to do. And so kind of at that point, that's when I made that transition from the finance to the financial engineering masters at Michigan. Uh, That program no longer exists. They've created a new one since then. Uh, But part of that struggle was I was behind in math. So for many students that are going to be, you know, business or commerce majors, you take all your math classes, typically your freshman year, your freshman, maybe your sophomore year. And then you just do finance and accounting the last two years. And so by the time you go back to do a master's, you haven't touched math in two or three years. I took a gap year anyways. And so making that transition was really hard. Um, Choosing to leave the financial engineering master's at Michigan was really challenging on myself just because I wanted to have, you know, like the stamp of approval on the resume that it had financial engineering in it. Um, But for me, taking a full semester off, just focusing on learning math uh, by myself and catching back up and then transitioning into a master's program in applied economics, which had more focus on the modeling and statistical side and less on the you know fun and exciting derivative side, but yet most of us aren't going to do that. 
Um, it was a challenging switch, but that's kind of how I made the transition and going from business to, or I guess finance, traditional finance to quant finance was a huge lift just because of the math gap between the educational programs. So if you had to start again, what would be your choice of undergrad and master's program? I have actually thought about this a lot over the years because I get asked this a lot. Um, if I had to do it again, I would probably dual master's and undergrad in statistics and applied mathematics. And then I would also do an applied uh, economics master's for my master's degree, just because I feel like economics has kind of that financy blend and application that you'd get in quant finance. Um, and then the undergrad piece of doing stats and math together uh, really gives you a solid foundation to kind of launch your career into that quant space. Okay, right. And what would you say uh, was the main reason why you changed uh, for a more quantitative focused degree? Was it uh, mainly the, the rigor with them involving the math? Uh, the reason I, I switched in general was I, I didn't realize. So in my mind back in 2000 and I think it was like 11, 2012, somewhere in there, 2010, um, I thought finance was what you're seeing in the movies, right? It's Wall Street. It's lots of money. Uh, it's this you know high flute MBA from Wharton or from you know some big name school. But it wasn't until I took that final class in um, financial engineering in my undergrad, I started realizing, I started talking to people in the industry and they're like, no one's building models that has a business degree. So you need to you need to go get a math degree. You need to get a financial engineering degree. And at that time, there was only about 12 uh, financial engineering masters in the country. Um, today, there's probably over 50, maybe 60 of them in the US. Um, so making that transition for me was important just because I realized what I really wanted to do, which is work on Wall Street and build models and do stats, um, was real interesting finance, where like the investment banking side of putting together, you know, presentations and PowerPoint and doing Excel wasn't what really excited me. And so that's where I kind of had that aha moment that I needed to get some sort of STEM degree. And more precisely, what made you focus on the risk management other than, for example, quantitative uh, research? So that's actually a really interesting question. I get asked quite a bit as well, which is, so when I went to school, I wanted to be in trading like everybody, right? Trading is where it's at and it's so exciting. You're going to make millions of dollars. And then I realized as I went through school, the thing that I enjoyed the most was doing math and stats. I did not enjoy the business side. I didn't enjoy the, the networking events. Um, and so a lot of people, I think, think trading and those sorts of tasks are quant finance. I would actually argue back from like the 80s when fin uh, quant finance started and financial engineering started, um, those building math and stats are real quants and those doing fun, frilly, like, programming and trading are not quants, which is kind of rubs people the wrong way. Um, but risk management at a bank used to be considered quant. Um, but then when everything blew up in 2007, 2008, they couldn't say we have a bunch of really fancy quants um, building models because right, we just tanked the market in 2007, 2008. So they relabeled us and said, hey, uh, regulators, we got a whole team of risk management professionals over here. Um, they're not really quants, they're risk management professionals. And so for me, what got me into the risk side was when I applied for jobs, I applied just for statistics jobs and math jobs and model development jobs. And I completely threw out the idea of working on Wall Street at that point. And it wasn't until probably four or five years in, I realized I was actually doing quant work finally. I was building statistical models and a lot of the things in the textbooks we learned, I was actually doing on a daily basis. Uh, and so for me, I kind of just fell into risk uh, in the pursuit of doing something that was more quantitative. Great. And now let's move to our career related section. 
After graduating from your master's degree, you received offers from two different firms. How did you do that? And how did you prepare for your interviews? That is a great question. So I, so little background on me. I worked in, I mentioned corporate finance and accounting in a previous life. Um, and then I went for my master's and got my financial engineering master's. I wrote the worst resume possible, but I didn't realize it at the time. I think many students make this mistake. Uh, the mistake was I had my resume chocked full of all of my experience, right? Corporate finance, accounting. And then I had this great master's degree with all this skills and experience in doing quantitative modeling. Uh, but the issue was, is that employers don't want to see that. They don't want to see a well-rounded candidate. They just want to see someone who just does model development. They don't care that you used to do accounting and finance, which I thought was this big lift. So I applied to banks um, doing like investment banking. Um, I applied to hedge funds, trading funds. Um, I was being kicked out of my, so my wife and I at the time were being kicked out of our apartment. The school said, no more, uh, you have graduated. You have passed the two week mark. You must be out by this date. Uh, and at that point um, I realized uh, I, I needed to do something different. And so my resume, I thought, screw it. I'm going to scrap the whole resume and start over. And I just listed the things I enjoyed doing. So I didn't put a lot of the derivative pricing on there and a lot of the stochastic calculus. I just chalked it full of like, oh, I built a cool statistical model for this one class. And I took econometrics. And I listed out all the skills. Um, and then the last two weeks, I made really good connection with programs that started saying, hey, this guy has just the modeling things we need. They don't have everything else. They're an expert in this one field. And so at that point, uh, since I changed the resume just to do what I wanted to do, I ended up getting two offers from two different banks, um, both for CCAR modeling, which was a trendy topic at the time. And they really needed people with time series experience. And on my resume, I had econometrics and time series listed. And that's really how I landed those uh, two job offers. So we could say that your first resume was made more for traditional finance roles like investment banking or hedge fund or private equity. Yeah, it was more of a blend. So I... I thought that people would like the quantitative skills and the traditional finance skills put together because you hear a lot of people talk about this, right? If I just had somebody that understood the business side and the quant side, uh, the reality is nobody wants to see a combination. So the business side hates seeing uh, math and statistics. They kind of wave it off as like you wasted your time. And then on the quant side, they see too many business skills. And they think, oh, you're not a real quant. You're just doing soft finance skills. And so, yeah, having a resume, I think that's either only soft finance skills that are traditional finance or only quant skills is a better approach than trying to make that well-rounded uh, resume. And for people with STEM backgrounds, what are the most important finance concepts to learn prior to being interviewed? And what resources would you recommend to learn more about these topics? Um, the most important finance, traditional finance topics, I would argue is time value of money uh, and the CAPM, so capital asset pricing model. Uh, and more specifically is just learning financial products and where you're applying. So if you're applying to a bank that issues loans, spend the time to learn what a loan is, how it's calculated, uh, how you get interest rates, term and all that kind of jazz. Uh, if you're going to do the buy side, which is like the fund investing hedge fund side, um, learn about stocks and bonds from the corporate side. Um, learn about options, commodities, um, understanding just the products themselves and kind of how they work and who's going to be using them uh, would give you a big advantage um, in kind of the traditional finance knowledge. Uh, places to learn them, Google. Google and YouTube are amazing. Traditional finance is packed online. You can find tons of resources for free. Uh, of course, you can go out and find a, a, a textbook. Um, there's one by, I think, Kane and Bodie, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and it covers a lot of his traditional finance products as well. But yeah, just go start Googling, like, what is a stock? What is a bond? Uh, what is time value of money? And you'll find a ton of information available for free. 
Great. And prior to having your first permanent job, you worked uh, on contract on Wall Street. How was their lifestyle different from the one you have now? Um, so it varied a lot. So I had my first full-time job uh, working in banking, and then and that was in Dallas, Texas. And then I got an offer to work on contract for BCG for consulting. So it was a really weird structure of I didn't technically work for BCG, you know, all of the branding they sent out to our clients says that we worked for BCG. We worked for a company out of Denver that was a contract company. Uh, being on contract is very different. It's usually used as like a stepping stone, like you're not quite good enough. So you get a contract and then you hopefully turn that contract into a full time offer. Um, I knew a few people who were on contract full time, which was crazy. But contract is different in the fact that you get really excited because my salary was double. My compensation was double going from Dallas to New York on contract. What they don't, what you don't realize at the time is that you don't get all the benefits. So you don't have health care. You don't have 401k. You don't have uh, any sort of like savings or spending accounts or anything. I didn't have PTO. So no vacation days. So I couldn't take vacation. And any hour you're not working, you're not being paid. So being on contract is very free and flexible because you jump from project to project very quickly. Um, trying to juggle another contract to line up back to back with your next contract is very stressful. So you're on three month or six month contract and you hope your company finds you one or you can find one. Um, but being on full-time job, I think is a lot more reliable for most people. It has all the benefits. It has the stability. You have your vacation days. Um, you're treated much better as well. So contract, you're kind of disposable. It's like, you know, just show up, finish this project for me and get out. Where when you're on you know, salary, it's like the company really invests in your personal development. Um, and of course you're on salary, so it's a nice cushion to kind of have. In one of your video, you mentioned that you had a hard time finding your first job, uh, mainly because of the quality or reputation of your school. How important would you say the prestige of the school you attended is? Uh, so I went to University of Michigan. It's considered, I guess, public Ivy. So it's one of the best public schools. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think Michigan helped me land a job because of the name brand. So the bank I went to work for originally was from Detroit, Michigan, and they relocated to Dallas. So that branding helped me out quite a bit. Uh, my undergrad, though, so Washington State University, uh, no one has heard of it. So it doesn't matter if you were the brightest person in the world and you went there. Um, getting a job from Pullman, Washington, which is like in the middle of a wheat field, and landing a job in New York City is nearly impossible. Um, so I think your school location, the brand and reputation plays an important role to it. Um, but typically that role is it just gives you opportunities. It opens up new opportunities, but it won't necessarily land you the job per se. And would you say you have any tips for uh, people attending, say, uh, non-IV undergrads? Uh, to get a master's degree in a more prestigious school, like in the application process? Yeah, I would focus on the materials, um, focus on who you are as a person more than the GPA, which I think surprises many people. Uh, when you get into a quant master's degree, it's not like an MBA where you're concerned about, you know, who's your parents and how much money you make and what school you went to. Um, when you look at the quant space, you can have someone that comes from, a lot of us come from like no name undergrads, but the thing that drives it I think, and separates us is when we have good academics, you know, strong GPA ish, good exam scores. But the statement of purpose is what's going to land you that job. So like, why are you going into quant finance? Why do you need this master's? And don't tell the programs how great and wonderful they are because they already think they're great and wonderful. So when you write like a statement of purpose and you're like, oh, you know, Columbia is the best school ever and I really want to go here. Um, 
talking about like why you're wanting to get into quant finance. Like I want to help people with their retirements or I want to, you know, help people in subprime auto space or I want to build statistical models because it really excites me. Um, having a good reason for that, I think is critical. The thing I think that kills most applications, regardless if you come from a no-name school or even an Ivy League, is going to be the fact that uh, you talk about how much you love money and how you just want to make everybody else a lot of money and how smart you are. And these sorts of personalities typically get weeded out both in the grad school level, because no one wants to touch them, and then also in the application levels. I'll get a lot of people that interview for jobs, and they tell me just you know how much they just love money and how much they want to be on Wall Street. Uh, and that sort of attitude often just it's kind of like a, a negative thing we see in the industry, but not really talked about. Good. And for risk management interviews, do you have tips um, to to really be better than other candidates in the, in that interview? Yeah, the best thing you can do is learn um, to walk through a model development process. So regardless if you're model development or model validation inside of risk, uh, we focus on just building statistical models. Um, a lot of the interviews I've seen and been through will ask specifics about like models or projects I've done in the past. So kind of a, a tip for students here, if you're wanting to get into like a bank doing like loans, do a personal project on loans modeling that and then really learn the process and like think about what you're struggling with. Because as a student, when you go get data and you're frustrated and it doesn't work out perfectly because it's real world data, um, that's what I deal with every single day. Like as an industry practitioner, I'm like, ah, this model doesn't fit and the data is not, you know, it's not behaving the way I want it to. And so typically in interviews, most of them I've been in, people ask a lot about like loans and products and about the modeling piece and what you struggled with and what type of model structures you've done. Uh, what the interview is looking for more is just how do you think, how do you process? Um, because in the in risk management, like you're not going to get babysat too much and there's not going to be a lot of help. They're just going to throw you in and say, get modeling. And so I think to prep, prepare for an interview, it's, you know, learning to walk through and think about the projects you've done, think about the classes you've done. Um, most people in a grad degree are rushing through in a year and a half to two years. You're not thinking about that class you took three semesters ago, um, but really trying to like think about the class, think about the projects and being able to explain like st statistical assumptions and modeling and, you know, kind of the overall big picture view. I think students spend too much time focusing on like, I don't know, facts. Like what is, you know, what are the five assumptions of OLS? I'd rather you, you know, get three of them and then be able to kind of like stumble and think about it uh, instead of just memorizing like critical facts or, you know, Wall Street brain teasers. Um, continuing about uh, the interviews, um, are the interview styles from banks and hedge fund any different? Um, that is a great question, and I think it varies a lot. There's a lot of factors that tie into it. So I have interviewed at on the buy side when I was a student, so I can give you that perspective. I don't work there currently, so can't really give you too much on that. But um, Quant finance gets very confusing because everybody now is a quant, no matter what area you work in. So you have traders, which don't do really any math or stats, but their quants, their interviews are going to be very different um, than someone who's a quant dev, which I'd argue is also not a quant. Uh, they're computer scientists that are implementing math in computer science techniques and software and hardware to optimize. And then at the very beginning, you have an actual quant doing math and stats research and theory and strategy piece. Uh, so the interviews will vary based on that a lot. So the trading side, the hedge fund side a lot is brain teasers. Do you think fast? Can you solve problems quickly? Um, but I'd argue if you go to a firm and you're doing real quantitative research or model development, the questions will be very similar on you know projects and technical questions around your modeling types and why did they fail and how did they fail? I think those are kind of common in core. 
Um, but if you're preparing for trading interviews, for example, and it's Quant Trader, uh, be prepared to go out and buy the interview books off Amazon for Quant Finance. Because I've had friends that have interviewed at some of the biggest uh, Quant funds, and they say they ask the questions right out of the book. So learning those brain teasers, learning the the, the annoying problems, um, investing time in that's going to be very helpful. If you're wanting to do quant research and model development, we're really looking for deep thinking, slow people. So I don't need you to solve a problem in half a nanosecond. I just need you to be able to stop and think and figure out all the issues with it. And uh, once you get that job, like, how would you say uh, a, typical, a typical day working in risk management is? So risk management, so on the banking side, the sell side is very enjoyable. Uh, it's very slow, which I, I think is one of the advantages of working on sell side versus the investing buy side. Um, I usually get into the office in the mornings. Um, when I show up is when I show up. There is no like clock of like, you must be here at this exact time. Um, every bank I've gone to has had kind of this mentality, which has been nice. Uh, first thing I do in the morning though, is get coffee, check emails, you know, do all the boring kind of daily stuff you need to do, chat with colleagues, get going. And then finally, you have this really long-term project. It can be three months, six months, 12 months. Most projects are three months. Um, so you have this project you've been working on for weeks on end. And of course, you load up whatever software you're in, SAS or Python or R, and then you're just coding and thinking and modeling and taking notes. Uh, you'll typically do, I don't know, probably three to four meetings a week, give or take. Like there's not a lot of meetings. It's really just following up with other team members that are doing modeling for the same project or the manager assigning the work and checking the quality. Um, but an average day is pretty chill and pretty relaxed. I think this differs a lot from the buy side where you know markets are moving, markets are open, markets are closed. There's a lot of stress and timing. Uh, banks are very large. So as building models and validating models, they were like, I don't know, generating $60 billion per year. So for us, there's these massive models. We have to get it perfectly right. Uh, and then we don't even know the outcome for five to seven years of the model. So the culture and kind of the atmosphere is a little bit different, but there's a lot of programming, a lot of coding, a lot of personal time. Uh, and then you'll have kind of meetings and interactions kind of sprinkled in between. And how has your role changed as you gain experience and the responsibilities throughout the years? So as you climb the ladder, I think it becomes more and more challenging for quants because when you start off on the bottom, what you don't realize is the first few layers of like analyst, associate, and VP are individual contributor roles. You're heavily involved in modeling and stats. Um, as you get further and further away from that, you start to have to do a lot of soft skills. So a lot of you know managing employees, managing projects. Um, and then when you come into like a senior level, like you're running an entire department, it's, I guess, frustrating in many ways for quants because now a lot of my day is not spent modeling and doing technical issues. It's spent like, how do I take all this work from all these technical people and boil it down to something super, super simple in a PowerPoint for senior management to be able to understand? And then I have to convince everybody that my team knows what we're doing and how do we get buy-in on that? So as you kind of go up the chain, you start to become more and more like a business person. Um, but the challenge of communication, I think it's even harder. So when I was a junior, it was easy. I'd tell my boss, you know, oh, we failed these four assumptions and this is how we fix it. And like, we're talking in technical jargon and we're like drawing on a whiteboard and everyone's really excited. As you get to senior levels, right, you still have your juniors that you're communicating with and having these great conversations, but now trying to boil that down into a business terminology and get the final decision you want out of it. And business people are too busy. They don't want to hear, you know, I don't care about the model assumptions. Just tell me if the model is going to work or not. We'll all move on. Um, so as you kind of climb the ladder, you spend less time doing quant work, more time doing soft people skills and presentations. Um, and you'll kind of have more of a, I guess, 
communication barrier as you're trying to kind of skate both worlds of super quants below you and then super business people on the top end that just care about those kind of big decisions. Do you think that most quants have enough soft skills to be managers? Um, to be honest, no. I think it's very hard to find people that have crossover. Um, so even people think I'm very outspoken and exciting and presentation because I have a whole YouTube channel. Um, the hardest part for me is the soft skill piece. And people say, well, you know, communicating is easy. You just tell people what you want. But I have found it doesn't matter if I tell you what I want or even if I write it down so we can agree on this is what I wrote. Uh, the interpretation from that communication is very different. And so learning how to kind of communicate differently is challenging. And I think often if you're a really, really good quant, it's even harder to be a really good manager. Uh, but I think quants managing other quants is critical because eventually there's going to be a breaking point where that communication, an educational piece below them is lost. So being a good quant manager, I think, is probably one of your rarest skills. And there's not really a lot of good ones out there. Great. And considering what you just said, would you say the culture in uh, quantitative finance departments is more like uh, the culture in the tech industry or more like the culture in the traditional finance and banking industry? Um, I would say it's probably closer to traditional finance and banking. Um, there is a level of prestige that continually runs through quant finance, which I think is lacking or missing in tech. So a lot of the mantra in tech is like, you know, if you have the skills, you can do the job. Um, quants are very tied to the degrees. So we were hiring a director, I believe at some point, which is like the second highest category of ranking in a bank. Um, and we were looking at like, where's their PhD from? This person having like 15 years of experience, we care like where's the PhD from? Do they have a master's degrees? What theses were published? You know, and these were published, I think, like in the 90s. So, I mean, we're still tied into that, like your education, your skills and everything matter, even when you're tons of experience. Um, I think quants to a lot of us, at least on the sell side and the banking side, we still kind of have like that suit mentality. I mean, I'm still at a fintech now and I still wear a suit just because it's, you know, it's baked into me from being in traditional finance for so long. Um, I think. Tech is more like, how do you solve a problem quickly without looking at every possible fail point, uh, where quants kind of go back to that traditional finance and math side, where it's like, I have to ensure everything is absolutely perfect. Uh, and traditional finance, I think, focuses more on perfection. I think tech is more fun and exploratory. And so quants typically fall more on that traditional finance side. Uh, what level of coding knowledge is required to be successful in your field? That is a great question. So if you were doing quantitative research, Um, I would say you need to be proficient at a language, but not an expert. Uh, and what that means is uh, we program for functionality, not for efficiency. So when I write code and I'm building a model, uh, my goal is to take a bunch of data, be able to do a bunch of manipulations and modeling and try to get to some final mathematical output. Um, if you're working, so I'm functional, right? Any computer scientist will look at my code and laugh and go, oh, you could have optimized this or written this uh, loop a little faster and did all these things. So quant research, your goal is just to get to a mathematical equation that someone can use and is theoretically sound. So a lot of the focus is more on the math and the stats, less on the programming. Uh, if you work in quant dev, though, which I've mentioned, they're kind of like DevOps. Um, they're an interesting blend because you need to have expertise in hardware and software. Their coding experience like blows quants that are doing research out of the water. They just know everything under the sun. Uh, they show me little tricks and tips for making things better as well. Um, so if you want to end up in that space, I think the key is having a computer science background, but having a, a hard math background. So quant devs optimize on hardware and software, but often if they can find a faster algorithm or a quicker approximation through like numerical methods, that's where a quant dev will stand out from kind of someone in the tech field.
And how would you say quants are perceived by bankers and hedge fund managers? Do their perception differs or their value or their respect that we accord? Um, I would argue it's probably the same as it's been in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Um, typically, the traditional bankers look down on quants, right? I mean, when I was at a BCG, I worked under a ton of business people and we were being just paid to do things. I was told many times, like, just sit down, shut up and go build the models. Like, we'll handle the actual business. And so I think quant has become very trendy and popular and it's been spread out across the traders and the quant devs and everything. So it's kind of losing a lot of its meaning. Um, but typically when you work with a lot of the bankers, uh, they're the client facing people, right? They, they feel like they matter and quants are just doing a little bit of math on the back end. So I still think we don't get the respect we deserve. And I don't think the, I don't know, I think over the years we've had some departments that have treated us better and it's, we're slowly getting some attraction on, you know, we're actually adding a lot of value, but in general, especially when you get to wall street, a lot of the big firms, um, there's definitely a disconnect between the, the business side of like hedge fund managers and people that are actually client facing uh, compared to the quants. Great. And uh, we touched on that a bit earlier, but apart from becoming a manager, what would you say are the advancement uh, opportunities for quants? Um, that's a great question. There's not really a clear path, which is kind of frustrating, I think, for most quants. Uh, typically, right, you have an uh, analyst, an associate, and then vice president, which are typically like the individual contributor levels. Uh, vice president, you might start kind of managing smaller teams. Um, at that point, though, I think you often have to make the decision of, do you just want to sit at the firm and kind of churn out um, more or less annual raises? So your salary will keep going up, but you'll keep the same title over the years, but you can still focus on what you love to do, which is build models. Or do you want to start to deviate towards the management route, which I think there's probably more money on that side, at least on the sell side there is. Um, the buy side is going to be a bit different just because often you get paid in comps based on your performance. And typically uh, buy side firms like investment funds might focus more heavily on the quant piece. And so your compensation might go a little bit faster, a little quicker without having to go on that management side. Um, in 2017, you made a video about quant salaries. In those videos you mentioned, in this video you mentioned that a, real, a realistic starting salary for a quant was around $85,000 a year. How has the market evolved since then? And what are uh, realistic expectations in terms of salary for someone graduating from a good school with a master uh, or PhD in a STEM field? So I think that video still is relevant. Uh, I think salary comp is still probably between 80 and 100. Uh, a lot of the differences in starting comp is going to be around where you're located. So New York City, I would expect you to get 100 just because New York City cost of living is absurd. Um, I think it also holds though other cities like Dallas and Charlotte, North Carolina, and other parts of the country are still going to be around the 80s to 90s range. 100 is like a good comp. Uh, New York City, you might get up to 110 to start. Uh, that still stays about the same. I think one of the factors many of the programs the graduate programs lie about is they'll give you an average, um, but often they have some sort of student who has 10 years of experience or five years of experience that skews the average. So when I tell people you should be starting around 80, it's like almost everybody starting between 80, 90, and 100, somewhere in that range here. Uh, but it's it's still about the same. I don't, I don't know how inflation's impacted it recently, but I'd guess we're probably close to 100 to start, but not much more than that. Great. And I know you, you've worked more on the sales side, but um, for firms in the buy side, do uh, edge funds really beat the market? What would be an average return for a quant uh, firm on the buy side? Oh, that is a great question. I would not know off the top of my head, but from looking at Bloomberg's rankings this year, 
Um, I would say most hedge funds do not beat the market, especially after fees are considered. So understanding how a hedge fund works is challenging because you have what they report typically, which is how much return they've generated. Uh, and then you have to pay them a fee for that as well. And they take a chunk of your profits. Um, some hedge funds have done wildly successful like Renaissance technology. Um, but I'd argue most hedge funds do not beat the market um, from a lot of the data we've seen and you know, the traditional finance debate of do quants beat traditional finance and diversification. And you, know, you can find a paper that supports both sides. Um, but in general, I'd argue, I mean, they're probably, I don't know, anywhere between the eight and 10 range. I mean, I date myself a bit, but historically, I mean, the averages more recently probably in like the 12% range. I'd say hedge funds are somewhere similar, somewhere around there. You've talked about Renaissance Technologies, and I want to dig deeper into this specific firm. Um, it's probably the first uh, firm of its kind to become really successful. And to this day, it's still one of the most, most successful quantitative hedge funds. What do you think Jim Simmons, uh, the, the, the founder of the firm, was able to find or implement in its firm to make it so successful? So I think the big piece here, I think there's really two firms to talk about. One is going to be D.E. Shaw. The other one's going to be Renaissance Technology. I think the key between both of them is they value education far higher than they value profits. I think they understand the concept. If you take really, really smart people and you put them into really challenging problems, which would be quant finance. They come up with really cool and innovative solutions that make money. Um, I think the other firms in general are lacking in that because they put profits before education and training. So often it's like they're fighting over talent, like, oh, there's a really smart guy at this other firm, and then they buy them and bring them in. But the culture is not innovative. It's not educationally driven. Um, even when you look at Jim Simmons, like, He's awesome. You look at Stony Brook, he's still involved in the school. He's involved in like physics research. Um, D.E. Shaw was the same. He's a biologist that came into quant finance. Uh, he stepped down from running D.E. Shaw because he wants to focus just on running the research and educational departments of the firm. And I think those are kind of the secret sauce. Um, even being in the industry, it's really hard to convince management like, hey, can you guys give us like, you know, give my employees like 10 hours a week, just 25% of their time just to spend on research. It's a really, really hard sale to get. And I think that's been kind of the key to success they've had. So these two firms basically are going to take talent outside of the industry instead of focusing on the com uh, on the competition. Yeah, definitely. So if you look at you go to DE Shaw's website, for example, um, you just submit a resume. There's no job posting to apply to. And then they just look at your resume to see, like, if you'd be interesting to talk to. Um, often a lot of the candidates come from, you know, physics or pure math or applied math. I mean, I almost hired a psychology professor, which shocks people. Uh, but it's trying to find people that are interesting and have a lot of good research. Uh, Rentech is very secretive about how they do things. They keep everybody divided. Uh, I would argue, though, probably a lot of their best and, best and brightest minds are coming from outside of traditional quant paths. They're just looking for really excited, smart people. And then they can really get them into those interesting problems. Very interesting. And now moving to our mentorship segment. How should students go about finding an internship and how can they dif differentiate themselves uh, in the application process? Okay, so internships, you probably have two routes. Uh, the most common and probable route is just going online and finding internships online on jobs. Think about the big firms. Um, start to look at small firms though. A lot of people don't look at the small firms just because they want to work at Jane Street. They want to work at Bank of America, like the big names. Uh, often you can find smaller firms, makes it a little easier. Um, the second route besides applying online is going to be networking. This is far harder, especially for smaller no-name schools. 
um, the big fancy schools will bring the firms in and they introduce you to the students and that route is much easier. Um, networking on your own though, the big secret is doing uh, informational interviews. So show interest in the person you're talking to. Uh, don't run out there and say like, hey, do you have a job? Can you give me a job? Because that never tends to work out very well. Uh, but if you take an interest in them and learn about their firm and talk about your, you know, your ambitions and your goals, that often can lead to a good internship. Um, to prepare for an internship, learn to do projects that are exactly relevant to what you want to do. Uh, I cannot tell you the number of resumes I have seen that have like portfolio optimization, derivative pricing, uh, stocks, pricing stocks. Like it's the same project everybody else is doing. Uh, talk to industry practitioners, get an idea of the problems they're struggling with, and then try to create a project around that. Um, so I'm on the sell side of banking. I hardly ever, ever see anyone pricing loans, like retail loans. And there's free data on, on Kaggle. So you could go get it and create a project. And I think that would really give you kind of a standout uh, application. And say a student was not able to get uh, a quantitative finance related internships. Are there other math or stats internships that could be relevant to the field? Oh, yeah. So I think one of the biggest missed opportunities is machine learning and data science. Uh, even just traditional analytics at other firms. Uh, you're still programming, right? You're still in Python and R and everything. You're still doing analytics. It might not be as rigorous as quant finance or directly applied to quant finance. Um, but if you can get experience working as a data scientist, uh, an analyst, something, that's a good opportunity. Another option too is looking for your school and applying for research opportunities with professors. It's another like secret gateway that most students don't realize exists. And working for someone on a project that might be well known uh, could really help you out. And what advice would you give to someone if he was not able to break into the field? Um, the best advice I can give to you is look for things that are similar to what you want to do skill-wise. So don't focus on the industry, focus on the skills. Um, I've seen people that have gone into non-relevant fields, like a buddy of mine uh, has a PhD in forestry. Uh, he went and worked for one of the largest forestry companies in the US uh, and did statistical modeling for them because he loves statistical modeling. And then he ended up finding a job and ended up in quant finance. I think the same thing is true if you graduate and you're unemployed. Uh, try to find work that has similar skill sets and do that and get experience. And always you could try to kind of transition back at a later date. Great. And now for some questions related to the long-term uh, horizon related to the quant industry uh, and field. Do you think AI could be a threat or an opportunity for the field? Uh, I think it's an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity in the sense that most people don't realize quants are building, you know, traditional statistical models, which people find boring in math. Uh, we're also building all the machine learning tools and we're building a lot of the AI tools. Uh, we're just coming at it from the perspective of how do we understand it better? And I think as AI matures, there's going to be more demand for understanding it uh, versus like, you know, how do we implement chat GPT in 10 seconds? So I think that'll that'll continue to grow for us. And so do you think the market demand for quants is expanding? I do think it is expanding. I think it just seems slower than people are expecting. So one of the negative trends, as I mentioned when I was in school in 2014, 2012, uh, there's only about 12-ish quant programs. That's exploded. So there's a ton more talent looking for jobs. So it seems like it's way too competitive and the market's not growing. Uh, but I'd argue as banks get more complicated and more complex, um, as technology is advancing, I mean, R and Python are free now. Computer power is grown exponentially over the last 10, 20 years here, uh, that we will see like markets expanding into smaller participants as they leverage modeling and data. Um, also, as we kind of see like the technologies expand as well and become more available, I think even the bigger firms will continue to hire more and more quants as they advance. Great. And do you have uh, any overarching goals for yourself or your career in future years? 
That's an excellent question. I used to think I wanted to reach a specific title, which I think is what most people think about, right? I wanted to be a CRO of a global bank or institution here. Um, but as I've aged a bit more and thought about it, I think my overall long-term goal is to find a perfect opportunity where I can balance um, my personal interests and hobbies of doing research and model development, uh, as well as teaching. So teaching is one of those things that I think a lot of quants end up enjoying just because you do it so much in a career of teaching junior staff. Um, for me, the long-term goal is how do I find that perfect balance of working with academia, teaching, and that sort of aspect, as well as you know keeping the day job with real problems and real issues, uh, not just the fun, pretty kind of academic uh, data sets. So we are over with the longer questions. We're going to go into a rapid fire question. So you can just answer with yes or no, or whatever the question asks. We don't need any explanation. But before that, do you have anything you wanted to add or to say to students who may be interested in quantitative finance that we didn't talk about? Uh, I think overall, my advice for anyone you know, interested in quantitative finance is really try to find as many industry practitioners as possible and talk to them and figure out what they do and don't like about their jobs. I think students often focus too much on a name or a title or a brand, uh, both with universities and corporations to work for. If you really find what you love to do and you really chase that, in the long run, regardless if you end up in quant finance or tech or somewhere else, you'll be happy wherever you're at. Great. And for the rapid fire questions, the first one is, what are the three most important qualities to succeed to succeed in quant finance? Uh, IQ, uh, the ability to challenge and be a rebel, and the drive to always be perfect. And what are the three most important skills to succeed in your field? Uh, stats, math, and programming. Great. And in one sentence, how do you define success? Um, doing what you love. What is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? Um, careers are not linear. Just follow the best opportunities available to you. What's the best decision you ever made in your career? Um, leaving banking. <laughs> and on a scale of 1 to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? Uh, six. If you were not working in the finance, the quant finance industry, what would you uh, be doing instead? Uh, I'm working in tech. Um, what do you think is the worst decision you made in your career? Um, working in consulting. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> what is the one book you would recommend to all of our listeners interested in quant finance? Uh, My Life as a Quant by Emmanuel Derman. Okay, so this wraps up our, our interview for today. We really thank you for your time. We think your insights will really help uh, students of McGill's who are interested in quantitative finance. Thank you for I having me. I wish you a good afternoon, Dimitri. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Instagram. Have a good one and see you next time. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. 
guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for your given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.